Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Welcome to episode 15 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. This is one we're titling Mergers Instead of Acquisitions. That's right, the M in M&A stands for mergers. We always talk about acquisitions and it's the fastest ramp uh, to a really quick growth strategy. But what does the M in M&A really mean and how should you think about it? I think you're gonna get a lot out of today's episode and I'm sure you're gonna wanna take a lot of notes. So get your pad and pen ready and brew another cup of that awful Keurig coffee. We're ready to roll. Welcome once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. And today we're gonna be talking about the M in M&A. As I said in the show opening, we work with a lot of group practice clients that are interested in growth strategy through acquisition. And I would say that that percentage that we work with in terms of our core customers, our core clients, reflects that at the enterprise level. Most enterprise groups and most doctor-founded and debt-funded groups are growing by acquiring other existing businesses. They're paying some amount of cash and potentially some amount in an earnout, or even potentially some in an equity role provision. However, there are not many that have taken the M approach to growth strategy. And by that, I mean the merger approach. And why is merger and acquisition such a commonly used phrase when mergers are hardly ever talked about? Well, today, this is going to be another installment in a podcast series that really centers around the concept of equity. Equity is scarce, it's incredibly valuable, it's highly motivational, and it really helps when it comes to aligning interests. Equity could be your best currency in terms of growing your overall business. And there are a lot of things to consider with this. So I'm going to try to unpack some of them for you today on the podcast. Suffice to say, I can't go um, a mile deep and an inch wide, so to speak, and cover all the bases. But I'm going to give you a couple of things to think about as it relates to this. So before we do that, instead of acquisitions, let's think combinations. Okay, it's a little bit of a different mindset. Again, many of you in the audience are are thinking about your growth strategy in terms of um, usually practices to acquire. Those acquisitions all too often are from a seller that is, let's say, very close to retirement. They may not be selling the business and walking away outright, but they're uh, two to three years from it, right? So the idea behind that acquisition is that we acquire a business 
Uh, we consolidate the business, maybe put some of our systems and processes in there, as well as one of our associates. And then the seller transitions out in some short-term period, and our associate takes over to continue the growth strategy or growth projection of that individual practice. We typically see our clients acquiring those businesses for um, 100% cash to the seller. All right. So they're using bank. So our clients, the, the group practice owner, using bank funds, um, borrowing bank funds, using debt leverage to acquire that location. And whatever the selling price is, they're borrowing that amount from the bank and they're paying that amount to the seller. Uh, the seller puts that in their bank account. Um, and then the the, uh, the the client, our client, the group practice owner, owns 100% of that business now. And it's up to them to create equity and grow the value of the business over a longer period of time as the seller ends up transitioning out. I would venture to say that that happens in 90% of the uh, enterprise or in, in the emerging group practice space. Most of um, the emerging group practice space is growing through acquisition. We really don't see nearly as much de novo out there or cold start. Um, and I, I think that most of the acquisitions are done by uh, what amounts to a full-scale buyout. And there's nothing wrong with that in the right context. That being said, there are a lot of successful uh, solo practice owners that might be more mid-career or at least they're not ready to hang it up and walk away altogether at this point. Uh, and for that reason, they're really not interested in selling their practice. They could, however, be interested in merging their practice. And if we go back to two words that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, and they are equity role, many of you in the audience are familiar with the concept of an equity role. We talk about this a lot from a sell-side representation standpoint. And an equity role is usually when you've built a successful uh, solo practice or a group and you want to find a capital partner like a private equity fund uh, or an enterprise-level DSO, and you want them to acquire 60% of your practice or your group, and you're going to roll the remaining 40% into equity in the parent company and go along for the ride. You also hear this talked about a lot um, in a phrase called the second bite of the apple. Now, essentially what that means for those who aren't familiar is that you sell the business today or 60% of it in that example that I just used, the equity that you roll into the, the new company, the parent company, that 40%, um, over, it hopefully grows over a period of a couple of years. And when the parent company recaps, meaning the private equity sponsor changes, then that equity is released and you get essentially a second sale of the business. And sometimes that second sale of the business can be worth a significant amount more than the entire first sale of the business was. Um, and that is a, a sort of uniquely timed phenomenon that we're seeing right now in the space that we operate in. And it has a lot of people really interested in potentially selling their business um, or finding a capital partner either this year or in the years to come. So if you take that same equity role mindset, it's not too dissimilar from a merger concept. All right. We're dealing with equity once again. And the reason that this is important 
And what I started out saying is that there are a lot of people that are successful clinical dentists and successful business owners. They may own one practice. They may own a couple of practices and they may be mid-career. They may be enjoying the practice or the group that they built. They may not be anywhere near wanting to sell the business outright and retire, and they may not want to be part of a private equity-backed venture. So where does that leave them? That leaves them a little bit in no man's land. But these are typically um, mid-career dentists, and I use mid-career pretty loosely here, but they are people who are still enjoying the journey. That being said, they may be looking for um, uh, a safer harbor or to be part of a larger doctor-owned group without necessarily having to build it all on their own, on their own shoulders, on their own back, with the, the stress that falls on them of more leverage on the business through more debt funds. They may be willing to be a partner in a larger business um, that still is doctor-founded and debt-funded. So the theory is that if you think about your growth strategy as a, a, an entrepreneur who leads a successful group practice, your value proposition to some of these people might be that you don't have to acquire their practice outright. They could merge a lot of it into yours. They could roll a lot of equity into your business and be a partner in it, probably a minority partner, but a partner nonetheless. And it would be a, a joining forces mentality versus selling the business and waving the white flag type of mentality. And that's a different type of a, a prospect, if you will, to pursue through your growth strategy. You're not looking for somebody who says, yeah, you know what? I'm 99% to the end of my rope. I'm ready to get out. I'd love to sell my business. Good luck. You can make of it what you want. I'm out of here. Uh, versus somebody who says, look, you know, I've, I'm at a point where I've kind of taken this as far as I can go. Um, I'd love to have a greater equity stake um, uh, in your business. Uh, and I'm, I'm willing to merge my business into yours. Uh, and there's a lot of merit to that from a, a professional to professional type of an approach. And it's much more collaborative versus um, a, a show of capitulation or or resignation even. Uh, and I think that's a different mindset as some of you think about your local market and the way you're going to experience the next wave of growth. The other thing is when you think about a group that may be um, 10 to 15 locations, I'm just sort of making up numbers here on the location front, but this would be a successful group that's probably you know, three to $5 million in EBITDA, let's say something like that. Um, and they're well-run, they're operationally sound, they do good clinical dentistry. Some of these types of businesses uh, that are at that stage are, are, um, have grown through uh, solo acquisitions, but they may be at a size and scale where they could be impacted positively by the merger of a smaller group uh, that could be in a neighboring state. It could be in a different area of the existing state where they're not currently represented. You could gain uh, immediate market share, or it could be a specialty group. 
if the parent company, if the larger 15 location group we're talking about is a pure play general dentistry group, maybe it's time to look at a multi-specialty group um, as an adjunct to the core services we offer and a perfect complement to them. So it could be that you're looking at a, a smaller group to merge into yours, and that smaller group could have a geographic component to it. It could have uh, a specialty component or a combination of both. Um, it could also be that the, the smaller group has really good leadership. And, and as many of you in the audience know, all too often the, the challenge in getting a group to a, a, the next level is a leadership challenge. Uh, and sometimes it's, you know, the, the founder of a group can only take it so far. And sometimes it's better, again, to collaborate and to join forces to build something bigger than either group could build on their own. And that's kind of the, the way you want to think about phrasing it from uh, approaching um, a prospective group and wanting to open the merger type of a conversation. Or it could be the same thing for a, a successful solo practice um, where that successful dentist has taken it as far as he or she could. And, and they may be mind ready to partner with a doctor founded debt funded group like yours. So I, I wanted to get this out there because. As, as you know, if you've been following the podcast for the last probably four to six weeks or so, we've been talking a lot about equity. And equity is a very, very valuable but underrepresented source in terms of your growth strategy. If you don't understand the value of the equity that you've created in your business, there's not a lot of ways to unlock it other than selling your business. But DeWalker and I really feel strongly about using equity in a couple of different ways. You've heard us talk about this from the um, uh, profits interest unit and the restricted stock unit aspects of associate equity and executive equity. That's, that's like talent management. That's human capital, uh, attracting the best and brightest into your business. But there's also this aspect of growth strategy that can be a result of it. And the, the merger piece is a, a really compelling one if you can find the right candidate and if you can get it right. So when I say get it right, what do I mean by that? There's always more to the story, right? And I, I said at the inception that I wouldn't be able to go uh, to the nth degree in terms of depth on this, um, but I'm going to touch on a handful of different things that you want to think about um, as you're sort of rattling this concept around in your brain. Um, and, and the first thing uh, is uh, probably the, the, the easiest thing to, to get out of the way, first and foremost, is debt. Okay. So what do I mean by debt overall? Well, that's bank funds and the way somebody uses bank funds to grow his or her business. So let's say that you are approaching a successful solo a practice owner who's taken that business as far as he or she could, um, they're mid-career, they don't want to sell the business, but they, they're interested in potentially being part of your successful group. But they have $300,000 worth of remaining debt on the original practice loan or something to that effect um, that they're paying off over time and it's a couple of years left before they, before they pay it off. Well, the debt that the solo practice owner 
has personally guaranteed is not assignable, meaning you can't just start, you and your group can't just start paying the debt on their behalf. All right. So you can't transfer the debt from them to your, your practice or your group, excuse me, from their practice to your group. So when you approach somebody who has uh, a remaining amount of debt on their business, that debt is going to have to be solved for first. As we all know, debt comes before equity, right? So before they can merge their, their equity into your business, the debt has to be paid off. So the question becomes, who, who's going to pay it off and how is that going to happen? Nine times out of 10, what's going to happen is that you're going to value that business and you're going to write them a check for that amount of debt that they're going to in turn pay off the bank. And they're going to merge the remaining equity interest into your business. So that's a net equity merger and it's net of debt at that point. So I'm not saying that you need to go out there and start this conversation with every mid-career dentist, irrespective of the amount of debt load that they have. If some are carrying a lot of debt, it very well would, it might preclude them from doing any type of a merger because there wouldn't be a whole lot left after they paid off the debt. On the other hand, if it is somebody who's, again, I call it mid-career, um, and they bought a practice seven years ago, um, and they've been paying off that practice loan over a 10-year term, and there's not much principal left, they may have created a lot greater equity in the business beyond what their original seller could. So they may their business may value very highly, and the amount of remaining debt that, that you would have to solve on their behalf in a transaction might not be that great. So the opportunity for a, a merger in that context might be pretty compelling. So it's always important to understand the debt context on behalf of the um, uh, prospective, uh, I'll call them seller. In this case, I use the term seller pretty loosely, okay? Um, the next thing along the same lines is valuation. Now, valuation can take on a couple of different contexts relative to how uh, big and successful your business is and the size and, and EBITDA volume of the target. Um, and those may use different valuation multiples to arrive at the equity value of the existing business, the, the group practice, uh, and the solo practice in this, in this context. So it is okay to use different multiples for um, different size businesses in that context. And in fact, it's, it's basically appropriate to do that. Um, one other thing um, uh, about debt that I failed to mention, sorry for bouncing around here, but in the context of uh, merging two groups together, say it's a 15 location group and a, a five location group or something like that. And let's say that both of them are carrying debt on the business um, but the merger is uh, is a compelling one to create a greater business uh, with greater breadth and scope and and size and geographic expansion, all that kind of good stuff. Okay, in that situation, there may be an opportunity to do something called debt recapitalization, in which case you find um, a, a middle market bank or a lower middle market bank that is willing to to take out both uh, debt structures on either side 
and recapitalize it onto the balance sheet of the combined entity at that point um, so that you wouldn't have to pay off any debt for the group that's merged in. It can be recapitalized at that point. Um, and that is a, a strategy that we've seen work and work quite well uh, for a number of groups that we've consulted with. Debt recapitalization is not something that people think about too terribly often, but again, in the right context, it can be the, the exact right approach for the betterment of both parties, the 15 location group and the five location group. And it can be the right thing for the merged entity going forward as well, more, more importantly. Okay, so um, valuation is, um, uh, is something to obviously pay attention to. Debt is something to pay attention to. And those two can go hand in hand, depending on um, the size of, of both of the entities and the difference in size of both of the entities. Um, the next piece I'll, I'll talk about that's worth uh, considering is something that I wish everybody talked about, but not nearly enough people do, uh, and that is culture. Culture matters a lot in these emerging groups, and those that are, have a strong culture typically are more successful in their operations. That's a broad brush statement, but it plays out all too often. And when you have a business that has a strong culture and successful operations, merging cultures together can create problems. Uh, and, and this is a conversation that if you get down the road with a potential merger candidate, I would encourage you to spend a lot of time around what are your core values, uh, mission, vision, and values, right? Um, and and you know, how do you operate the business that reinforces the culture of the business? Um, much the same way as two uh, uh, chief dental officers would talk about uh, clinical philosophies and treatment philosophies, culture matters every bit as much. Where there is uh, uh, a lack of success in mergers, it usually goes back to a, a misalignment of cultures. And you can see this even um, in corporate America. This is not unique to the dentistry or group practice dentistry or anything of the like. This is totally something that um, spans all different sectors of the economy in terms of M&A activity. Um, and I, I just think that there are far too often in our world, at least, that uh, culture is uh, not talked about or addressed early enough. Um, beyond culture and clinical philosophy, like I mentioned, um, there's what I would call control. Uh, and that can be day-to-day -day control, like who's the managing member of the business, who's responsible for making day-to-day -day decisions. It's certainly um, important to talk about um, uh, control and, and how people operate the business for those who are in charge of it. Um, and then there's also voting control. How are things decided? You've heard us talk about this um, frequently from an operating agreement standpoint, but you know, uh, any, any business you merge in is going to have voting rights to it. Um, so it's important to understand for both them and you how we're accustomed to operating these businesses from a day-to-day -day roles and responsibilities standpoint, but also from a control standpoint and specifically voting control. Uh, and, and I think it's important to spend that time up front so that you don't end up in a compromised position with a merged entity that is ungovernable. Um, businesses that, that lack leadership and direction or the uh, decision-making ability tend to underperform and this happens pretty dramatically and pretty quickly. So 
as you think through what the new entity might look like, it's important to spend a little bit of time with that uh, uh, prospective uh, uh, candidate um, or that business leader uh, to find out how they approach decision-making and control, how their operating agreement is, is set up, and is it going to require a redraft of, of your operating agreement, or are you going to just assimilate them into it? Um, the next thing I would say is, uh, is payer mix, and the, and the, uh, this sort of goes hand-in-hand hand with clinical philosophy and, and patient um, care and experience. These are all interwoven together, but if you have uh, a, a fee-for-service, 100% fee-for-service type of a business, the systems and processes to operate that fee-for-service business are significantly different from a PPO type of a business, which are significantly different from a business that might have a, a larger concentration of Medicaid patients. And the payer mix dynamic as it relates to the patient flow or patient experience is something that uh, can create a lot of friction, and um, it can also candidly um, be uh, something that causes the attrition of value and valuation in a business, meaning the, e the, the merged EBITDA doesn't materialize to the, expectation, uh, to, to the expectation of either party as they were going through the process of merging the business. So payer mix is something obviously to, to pay attention to. And the last thing I'll say is the exit strategy. Um, you don't have to have a predefined exit timeframe or number or multiple or anything like that. But if that's your intent to sell the business, it, it really is better to probably get on the same page and make sure you're on the same page with any other business you're looking at merging in and get on the same page early on. You would hate to think that your intent was to build up a bigger business, use a merger as a catalyst to get there, and then you know want to find your capital partner or sell it outright, only to find out that that your new partner had none of those intentions. Um, I, I think it's important to spend some time around the the future vision of the business. And is that three years down the road? Is it five years down the road? Is it ten years down the road? Or is this a build and operate business? You've heard us talk about uh, the differences in, in businesses with exit strategies that are predefined versus, versus those that are more, we call them kind of lifestyle businesses. But if it's build and operate, obviously nothing wrong with that. Um, my wife, you've heard me talk about, uh, is an ophthalmologist and part of a large I and ENT group here in Charlotte. And they're 100% physician owned. And I think they're 70 some odd partners in that thing. So it's a really, really large business, but they've grown it to be really large to stay independent. And if that's really what your driving force is and your MO and what you're trying to build, and you can find people that, that align with your vision for that, merging those types of practices in can be um, immensely beneficial. On the other hand, if yours is a um, looking to find a uh, a, a couple of practices or groups to merge in and then exit in two years, then it probably would be good to know that early on um, uh, from the perspective of the people you might be courting for that. So I think it's uh, important to be clear on the exit strategy piece. So the merger piece in terms of mergers and acquisitions, again, is something that uh, really doesn't get talked about 
uh, hardly ever or at all. And it's, it's really all about acquisitions in our world. But I think changing your mindset slightly, if you're a doctor-founded and debt-funded group, uh, to being more open to what a merger might look like um, can be immensely beneficial and it can have a lot of um, uh, positives to note with it. There are a handful of complications to it, obviously, like I touched on here. I couldn't go very deep into all of them, but I think I gave you enough probably to think about and consider as it relates to maybe reshaping some of your growth strategy. Again, what I started out by saying about equity being a very, very valuable currency holds 100% true. And if you understand the value of the equity that you're creating in your business, then you can use it to your advantage. And hopefully that can help to facilitate some of your growth strategy. Needless to say, I hope you found this to be um, somewhat educational and to a degree informative. Uh, and I hope you will be able to find a way to apply it in the business that you're building. If you got questions or any comments or anything related to the concept of mergers, feel free to drop me an email directly at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Be sure to stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. So before we wrap things up on the Group Practice Accelerator podcast today, I wanted to take a second and answer a couple of questions uh, from the audience. And these are a little bit more lighthearted and uh, uh, fun, if you will. Uh, and I appreciate those types of questions every bit as much as we do uh, the questions we get about group practices and, and subject matter, if, if you will. Um, but one of them <laughs> comes from the audience and says, what exactly is uh, your favorite type of coffee? Sometimes I think as, as much as I bang on the Keurig and, and talk about being a coffee snob and everything like that, you you draw the wrong conclusion that this podcast was about coffee. And it, it's obviously not. Um, it's a vice of mine. I readily admit it. Uh, and, and I am a coffee snob. So I'm happy to take this uh, this question and I'll I'll tell you that I'm also open to uh, recommendation. I like strong coffee. I like dark roast coffee. Um, I love espresso. Um, I don't put cream or sugar or anything in mine. I, I drink it straight. And there's nothing more annoying to me personally than getting watered down coffee or some type of a, a milk toast type of a mild blend of coffee that is uh, hardly worth, worth my time. And it's typically very bitter. Uh, so my favorite coffee, if I could drink it every day, uh, would be a Starbucks roast, and I know that's horrifying to a lot of people in the uh, in the audience. But just wait for a second here. It's Starbucks Italian roast, which is a super dark roast that's close to espresso. And Starbucks, in a, in a handful of their stores, not all of them, have something called a clover machine. Uh, and for those in the audience that um, have ever had uh, a French press type of coffee, which is that coffee you put in a, a small pot, you put the grounds in the pot and you pour um, almost boiling hot water over the top of it. You let it steep for about five minutes uh, and then you push like a plunger down for lack of a better term and you pour the coffee directly in the coffee cup. So it's, it's unfiltered um, and it has all the natural oils of the coffee. And when you get really good beans that are freshly roasted, um, that are ground the correct way, 
uh, and you you give it five to 10 minutes before you push the plunger down, it is really one of the best cups of coffee you'll ever have if you like strong coffee. The Clover machine at Starbucks is, is kind of like a glorified French press machine, honestly. Um, I asked one of the baristas one time how much one of those things cost because I'd love to get one for my home. And she looked at me and said somewhere between thirteen dollars and $15,000. So that was the end of that conversation. But I still love the coffee a lot. And I love the Italian roast specifically in it. It's just a, for me and, and my palate, it's a fantastic cup of coffee. It's a great uh, coffee bean. And for those that do like going to Starbucks and are, are, like good coffee, occasionally um, you're able to find a, a, a location, a Starbucks location with a clover machine, C-L-O-V-E-R, just like a four leaf clover. Um, so ask them if they'll do you uh, some type of your favorite roast on the clover and you'll you'll probably taste what I mean by that. Again, my favorite is the Italian roast and they don't always have that in the stores, um, but when they do, it's a, it's a special treat for me. The second question from the audience uh, is around what podcasts I actually listen to. Um, and I do listen to a good number of podcasts, I listen to them when I'm on my bike or on the trainer. Uh, sometimes I listen to them in the car when I'm driving somewhere or on an airplane or something like that, or making breakfast in the morning. They're, they're a nice diversion from time to time. And I'll give you a handful that I do listen to. Uh, sports podcasts uh, for me are a release on life and they're a little bit of a, um, a getaway, if you will. I really like Colin Cowherd's show. He's a sort of an iconoclastic sports caster. He doesn't use bad language or anything like that, but he's got sort of contrarian opinions um, that are interesting to hear from time to time. I listen to his show a decent amount. Um, there's another one called The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt, uh, who is an attorney uh, by trade, uh, teaches a class on, on sports law at the Villanova Law School and was a player's agent and used to work for the Green Bay Packers professional football team. Uh, and he usually has a lot of interesting insights into things like contract negotiations and stuff like that. So the business of sports, I think, is fascinating from a business context. Uh, and then many of you know that I'm a cyclist. I enjoy riding my road bike a lot with friends and groups and things like that. And one of the most interesting uh, podcast I find is called The Move. It's a podcast from Lance Armstrong and one of his uh, uh, teammates for many years, George Hincapie. They give a lot of insight um, into the world of like the Tour de France and things like that, uh, and and a lot of insights into what happens within the peloton, which is the the group of cyclists. So for those who are cyclists out there, I'm sure you've heard of Lance Armstrong, and I'm sure you've probably heard of The Move. But it is a uh, it, it's really um, a podcast that I thoroughly enjoy on the sports side. Uh, on the entrepreneurial side of things, um, there are a lot of uh, podcasts around entrepreneurism uh, and a handful that I enjoy listening to from time to time that are like, you know, candy almost. You, you can listen to them one at a time or binge listen to them if you want. Entrepreneur on Fire by John Lee Dumas is um, uh, an interview type of a podcast. Uh, that is really fascinating and it's short form. So usually about 20 to 30 minutes entrepreneur on fire or EO fire, as he sometimes says, the prof G show from Scott Galloway is a bit more educational, uh, in nature. Scott Galloway is an economist, teaches a marketing, um, uh, class at, uh, NYU 
and has a couple of different podcasts. And the Prof G show um, is uh, really interesting from an interview format, as well as from a listener Q&A standpoint, from a teaching perspective. Um, Entree Leadership is part of the Dave Ramsey Network. Uh, usually some good interviews on there. Uh, and then from NPR, how I built this is uh, a longer form podcast from a guy, an interviewer named Guy Raz. And he interviews a lot of people who built successful companies and, and the journey that they're on. None of that is dental specific, but every now and again, you can glean a lot of things from it from an entrepreneurial context. Um, and like I say, it's, it's a little bit like mind candy, for lack of a better term. On the news front, I don't tend to watch the news, any of the news shows, um, be it evening news or, or talk news, if you will. Um, I don't listen to much of, of the radio and I don't have time to, to read the newspaper anymore. Uh, the news that I get is from two different uh, podcasts. One of them is a daily uh, show from uh, the Wall Street Journal, and it's called What's News?, it actually comes out about two or three times a day. It's about 12 to 15 minutes in length. Uh, and um, it is like the daily news digest of, of the headlines and a little bit of a deeper dive into them. But you can digest those pretty quickly and stay up to snuff on current events. Along the same lines, there is a longer form uh, podcast called The Journal from Wall Street Journal and Gimlet Media. And The Journal takes one uh, story into a deeper dive, 15 to 20 minutes, and, and goes deeper into that subject matter. It might be, it's not really editorial, but it's longer form content. And they do a really, really good job of unpacking some things that are headlines, some things that are investigative journalism, some combination of topics and, and current events. But it's a really, really well done show. And I, I enjoy that a lot. It's a little bit lighter news, typically. And then the last uh, group of podcasts that I tend to binge on occasionally are from the Strategic Coach Network. Strategic Coach is a program that I am enrolled in personally. Uh, it's a program for coaching entrepreneurs. Um, so I'd like to think that uh, DeWalker and I practice what we preach when it comes to uh, giving advice and guidance to clients, but we also seek advice and guidance for ourselves. And, and I find that uh, in Strategic Coach is my third year in the program. Dan Sullivan, the founder of Strategic Coach, is on probably six or eight different podcasts. If you search podcasts and you search for uh, Strategic Coach, he, his name's going to come up frequently. And I listen to uh, you know, three or four of them uh, inconsistent, inconsistently at best. Exponential we Wisdom with Peter Diamandis, Multiplier Mindset, which is um, one of the Strategic Coach podcasts, Free, Free Zone Frontier, Inside Strategic Coach, and there are a few others in there. But again, that's kind of like mind candy for me, uh, and it tends to reinforce some of the principles that I learn in the Strategic Coach program. So I know that's a broad brush overview on the uh, subject of a podcast, but I do get asked that a lot. Every bit as much as people are asking, you know, what books are you reading these days? They'll ask what podcasts I listen to. And some of those are, are really um, informative for me. And some of them honestly are just a departure from life for a little bit. And I think that's important too. So hopefully that gives uh, you a little bit of more background, a little bit more insight um, uh, from my personal level. And I hope that you find some of it fun and informative. 
Obviously, I hope that you're getting a lot out of our podcast. Thank you so much for the ratings that you're sharing and some of the good feedback. DeWalker and I really do appreciate that. And we see our, our subscriber numbers going up every time we release one of these. So hopefully we're doing something right. If you do have questions you'd like to submit or comments you'd like to share, feel free to drop them to me directly at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. I'll read and try to answer them on an upcoming episode. And if you want to find out more about us and what, what all we do, feel free to check out our website at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.